It's good to be together, and it's good to have people of all ages. And I think we've already been called to worship by some of our smallest people. Uh, Remember, it is a great privilege and a blessing that we have young people in our churches. We should rejoice in that. Our call to worship is some words from the prophet Isaiah and chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Now we're going to talk to God. We're going to pray together. We come to you, the God whom Jesus called Father, as your children. Some of us feel joyful as we come. Life is rewarding and we're glad. Some of us feel anything but joyful. Life's a struggle and we're sad. And most of us are probably somewhere in between. Life just goes on and we get on with it. However life is, and however we feel, you welcome us and enjoy our prayers. We thank you for the things that have made us happy this week. The good times we've shared, the new things that we've discovered, and those moments when we laughed out loud. We bring to you the things that have made us sad this week, the difficult times we've shared, the old hurts that resurfaced, the moments when we wept inside. We come as your children, needing to feel the warmth of your love, wanting to be reassured that all will be well, fearful of things we can't understand and hoping our dreams will come true. Loving God, parent and carer of us all, may we find what we seek and receive what we need as we spend this time with you. Amen. There are two lessons to be read this morning. The first of them is in the first epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. It reads this way. Under the title of the Lord's coming, our brothers, we want you to know the truth about those who have died, so that you will not be sad, as are those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will take back with Jesus those who have died believing in him. What we're teaching you is now 
What we're teaching you now is the Lord's teaching. We who are alive on the day the Lord comes will not go ahead of those who have died. There will be the shout of command, the archangel's voice, the sound of God's trumpet, and the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Those who have died believing in Christ will rise to life first. Then we who are living at the same time will be gathered up along with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So then, encourage one another with these words. Yes, that's the end of the sentence there. The second lesson is found in Luke chapter 6. We're going to read from verses 6 to verse 31 in Luke chapter 6. Sorry. Just like being at home here. <laughs> Luke, 20, Luke 6 verse 20. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Happy are you poor, the kingdom of God is yours. Happy are you who are hungry now, you will be filled. Happy are you who weep now, you will laugh. Happy are you when people have hate you, reject you, insult you, and say that you are evil, all because of the Son of Man. Be glad when that happens, and dance for joy, because a great reward is kept for you in heaven. For their ancestors did the very same thing to the prophets. But how terrible for you, who are rich now. You have had your easy life. How terrible for you who are full now. You will go hungry. How terrible for you who laugh now. You will mourn and weep. How terrible when all the people speak well of you. Their ancestors said the very same things about the false prophets. But I tell you, who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless them who curse you, and pray for those who ill-treat you. If anyone hits you on one cheek, let him hit the other one too. If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt as well. Give to everyone who asks you for something when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do not do for others what you want them to do for you. Amen. May God's blessing follow the reading of his word. As you know, I've been at the Baptist Assembly the last few days, and just about every speaker started with a funny story. I don't do funny stories, so you are not going to get one today. Um, but it was interesting to see how do we begin to start thinking about the topics we're going to talk about. A few months back, um, in response to something I'd written on my blog, Ken said to me, well, would you be willing to lead a theological reflection group on the topic of hope? I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, Ken, and kind of forgot about it. Well, tomorrow, um, I'm actually going to be doing that. 
serendipitously or otherwise, serendipitous is my kind of word at the moment, by the way, um, I began to look at the church calendar and the lectionary readings for November, and this theme of hope seemed to emerge from that. Now, it's an enormous, complicated topic that people far cleverer than me have spent their entire lives thinking about without reaching any definitive conclusions. Even so, I think we can usefully explore some aspects of hope, and specifically Christian hope, in the context of worship, and maybe we'll discover something helpful along the way. The old Christian festivals of all saints and all souls tend only to be marked within the high church traditions of the Catholic and Orthodox Christianity. Indeed, it's fair to say that most Protestant nonconformists, they tend to view these festivals with a bit of suspicion. And at worst, they denounce them as evil. So what that means is that most of us will rarely, if ever, spend time reflecting on the Bible readings that particularly relate to life after death. In fact, it's entirely feasible that we give very little consideration to what it means when the person who is conducting a funeral, having committed the deceased person to God's mercy and compassion, then goes on to commit their body either for burial or cremation with these words. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life in Christ our Lord. Now we can't unpack that fully today. But the readings we have heard can allow us to begin to think about what we might mean when we hear the words sure and certain hope and how that might affect our everyday lives. When I began looking um, to read around the topic of Christian hope and to find some books that might help me in my reading, it became very clear that there are two interrelated strands of thought here. One is at a very personal level, and it runs along the lines of, what will happen to me when I die? And the other one is at a universal level, along the lines of, and so what will happen to all of the created universe? Actually, they're not so different, because they both come down to the same thing. Where will it all end? Christian eschatology, the study of the so-called end times, is a diverse and divisive discipline, and that's a real shame. Because what we discover when we read scripture is actually quite beautiful, and it's brimful of hope. Christian hope can be understood as the horizon upon which we fix our gaze, the goal towards which we strive, the end point of our journey through life, through death and beyond. This not only helps us to negotiate the mystery that is the gateway called death, but it helps us to live hopefully in the here and now. The Bible is complex, isn't it? And quite bewildering. But within it, every now and then, we catch a glimpse of the eschatological hope, the ultimate destination, the terminus of the arc of history towards which we are tended. 
it's probably fair to say that our exploration of eschatology tends to be mediated through the book of Revelation and selected extracts from the Pauline corpus. All too often, it majors on wrath and punishment rather than grace and hope. So it's good to turn our focus back to the kind of eschatological vision that would have been familiar to Jesus and his followers, such as the one we heard right at the start of the service from the prophet Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-matured wine, of rich food filled with marrow. That doesn't mean um, squashes, that means um, like marrow fats, the, the best meat. Of well-matured wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that's cast over all people, the sheet that's spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. J.K. Rowling might have thought she invented death eaters. It's there in the Bible. God will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We've waited him for him so that he might save us. This is the God for whom we've waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So is that just pie in the sky? Is it a pipe dream of a hopeless romantic? A totally impossible, if lovely, ideal? Or a glimpse of the hope that inspires faith? The themes that Isaiah identifies seem to me to be absolutely brimful of hope. A fine feast spread for all to share. The ultimate destruction of death and sorrow. Death no more, tears no more, gone. Sin and disgrace overcome once and for all. And if we listen very carefully to that reading, this vision is not just for Israel, but for all. So is this some kind of universalist platitude? Or is it actually a statement of faith that in the end, all will be well? Well, universalism is another whole can of worms I'm not going to open up today. But as an absolute minimum, we can assert that through the whole spread of scripture, we are reminded again and again of the universal intent of God's will. For example... Paul, in Romans 5, says, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Or in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, you may all be Calvinists, I don't know. But whether we have a universalist position or a Calvinist position or whatever, we cannot deny the hope, the goal that one day all things will be redeemed. That's what scripture tells us. Not just people, but the use of all in the Bible means all things. This flawed and fractured earth, the distorted and damaged cosmos, 
All of that will be redeemed, restored and renewed. This is the hope that drove the ancients and this is the hope to which scripture points. As it says in Revelation, Behold, I make all things new. It says everything, every time I look at it. I think it's probably fair to say that by the time the people were in the early church, Isaiah's vision and others similar to it had slipped away from their consciousness. Remember, they were living under the Roman Empire, they were experiencing persecution, and they actually expected Jesus to be back any time soon and wind up the whole of history. If we read Paul's letters, we discover how frustrated he got with lazy, idle believers who just kind of sat there piously waiting for Jesus to come and take them away, and others who were just so heavenly-minded they were no earthly use. But here in Thessalonica, we get a glimpse of a pastoral Paul. I don't tend to think of Paul as pastoral. But these people have been waiting a long time for Jesus, who is showing no sign of turning up. Some of them have become old, some of them have become sick, and some of them have died. In a religious and philosophical melting pot where views on life after death were every bit as diverse as they are today, the Christians not only grieved for their lost loved ones, they feared that those who had died would miss out on the hope of Christ's eternal reign. That death is a mystery is a profound understatement. Pretty much anyone who's been with somebody just before and just after they have died will attest to some subtle but significant change. They were here, but now they're not. What happens to the soul, the essence of that person, we can't prove scientifically. And even within Christian theology, there are different equally orthodox understandings. But here, Paul offers to the Thessalonican Christians the idea of soul sleep. That those who have died are resting. They're sleeping safe and sound until the end of time. I find that a reassuring and comforting image. That those we love are safe and they're secure, they're held in God's love. But more than this, they're not going to miss out on this new creation, the hope that inspires the faith. Because Paul says that that, when that time comes, they'll wake up and they will come with Christ. That shouldn't really surprise us because it's there in Isaiah's vision. The shroud is removed, the veil is lifted, death is swallowed up by God forever. And Paul's vision is very rich in ancient Jewish symbolism, the cloud of God's presence, the sense of being caught up, not as being lifted skywards in some kind of weird way, but that this is something that's public, it's open in the air, that's what in the air means, it's outside. But also maybe a sense of emotional and intellectual rapture, rather than sorry if this offends, but some nonsense about people escaping a cataclysm. This is a vision of all made new, all brought into the glory of God. 
This Paul, who can be so plain speaking and tough talking, is offering hope to people who are sad, upset, and worried. In this world, it is inevitable that people will die. The point comes when our bodies are too tired, they're worn out, maybe they're broken beyond repair, and this life draws to a close. But mysteriously and wonderfully, life carries on. And one day, that invisible barrier of time and eternity will be lifted, like a veil, like unwrapping. And for me, that is a great source of comfort and hope. Those who have passed through death, one day that separation will be taken away. But what about the here and now? How does the hope that inspired Isaiah and the assurance offered by Paul affect the way we live? I've already said that Paul had very little time for the people who just sat back and waited for Jesus to come back. For him, salvation was not some kind of voucher to be cashed in after physical death, kind of admit one to the lovely time up in the sky. Salvation had to be worked out, had to be lived out in the present. But what on earth does that mean? And how does hope come into it? Here we turn to the Gospels and to Luke's curious counterpointing of Beatitudes and Solemnitudes. Unlike Matthew, who gives us a longer list of largely spiritualized situations in which blessing may be experienced, Luke gives us a short list which, at first sight, seems very human. They're puzzling sayings, or they should be, because they seem to elevate struggling and suffering over plenty and ease. But I have a hunch that we can read these with the idea of hope in mind, and specifically in light of the Isaiah vision. For the poorest of the poor, or for those who have to be careful with their money, the vision of a sumptuous banquet could be a great source of hope. It's something remote and wonderful, and though though it's not yet achievable... It's just possible. Faith has to pay a part, for sure, trusting that that promise will find fulfilment, that these are not just empty words. Hope carries with it a sense of determination. It's a kind of energy to continue the journey. It acts as an alternative to resignation and a slow death of the self. But on the other hand, for those who are materially well off, there is a temptation to self-reliance. An inward focus that gives no consideration to the wider context of which they are part. And potentially, no desire or requirement for faith or hope, since actually life's quite good, isn't it? Thanks all the same. Got plenty to eat, nice house, nice friends, nice life. What do I need to hope for? And it can actually promote an unhealthy lifestyle where the earth's resources are plundered, where wild abandon shapes consumption, and no consideration is given to the implications that might have for our children, grandchildren, and their grandchildren. The dependence on others, the participation in the whole of life, that 
people are interdependent with creation can be lost. There's no need for hope because they have all that they want and can feel they've arrived. I wonder whether you feel more like the poor people or the wealthy people in that context. I think the risk for us is actually, you see, we are amongst those to whom the warnings are given. We're the ones who run the risk of giving up on hope because perhaps we don't think we need it. We all have pretty comfortable lives. And there's nothing wrong with having pretty comfortable lives. It's not saying that that is wrong. What it is saying is that has the potential for us to become smug and self-satisfied. And I'm all right, Jack. And that's all that matters. That's why he says woe to those who have an easy life. Because it actually has the potential to undermine hope, to lose sight of that vision that inspired Isaiah and others. But all isn't lost. We have got Isaiah's vision. We have got Paul's pastoral vision. And that begins to transform us in the here and now. And it's what Luke goes on to say, that we should treat other people the way we want to be treated. Even those who oppose us, even those who insult us, even those who are unkind to us, and even those we find offensive. We're called to anticipate the eschaton, not just to look forward to it and think, this is great, I'm just going to sit and wait for this fantastic day, but to begin to work for its realisation here and now. We can begin to bring in that kingdom, that banquet, that recreation of all things. We've come a long way from the idea of all saints and all souls. Or have we? We've glimpsed something of the eschatological hope that shapes the Christian faith. We've been offered a source of comfort and a source of hope when we face separation from our loved ones through physical death. And we've been challenged to allow that hope and that reassurance to inform our lives. And we do that in a continuum of hope and faith with those who came before us, the official saints, the unofficial saints, and all the people who journey with us and who will come after us, who are held in the embrace of God's love. We live in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life in Christ our Lord. Amen. We come together in our praise for others and in our praise for each other. Let us pray. Merciful God, we come into your presence this morning not because we must but because we may. You are slow to anger and quick to show mercy. You welcome your saints. You welcome the sinners. You welcome us all. 
Let us at your table meet where Jesus knelt and washed our feet. Forgiving God, who cares for the oppressed, calms the worried, soothes the tormented, and nourishes the hungry. You challenge your saints, you forgive the sinners, and you give sure and certain hope for all who seek in you. Let us at your table meet where Jesus asks us, take a seat. Sacrificial God, who gave up your only son unto death, so that we might be forgiven, who prepares a way for us, so that we might be called your friends, who invites us to share in the bread and the wine, so that we will remember your sacrifice, your covenant to us, so that we may know and love the sure and certain hope that is in the one who died for us. Let us at your table meet, where Jesus asks us, come and eat. Triumphant God, who came to the world in humility, so that we may join you in glory, who endured the pain and anguish of death, so that we might have new life, who rose again, so that we may all be reunited with you when you come again. Let us at your table meet, where Jesus kneels to wash our feet. Enabling God, we pray for your guidance in our daily lives. We pray for the strength to trust and obey in your way. We pray for your forgiveness when we fail. And we pray that your love will shine through all our thoughts and deeds so that we can give to others as we have received from you. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the sure and certain hope that if he is for us, no one and nothing can be against us. For it was he who conquered even death for our sakes. Amen. May the God who meets us in Christ bless us with hope, courage and determination to live and work for the fulfilment of the promised kingdom of peace now and always. Amen.